Hello, everyone in podcast land. If you have ever wanted to see us on stage telling jokes and slinging facts, and you live out west, you can come see us in Portland, Oregon, or Vancouver, Canada. Yep, we'll be at the Chan Center in Vancouver on Sunday, March 29th, and then we'll be at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall in Portland on March 30th. And if you want tickets and info, then the best thing you can do right now is to go to SYSKLive.com. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there. There's Jerry over there again. Gosh, feels good to have you back. Cheers. Cheers says thanks. Uh, and this is Stuff You Should Know. The smell of miso is back. Yeah, I love the smell <laughs> of miso in the morning. I've been doing a lot of miso lunches, mm-hmm. actually. Just eating balls of miso? No, I found a, uh, I found a soup. It's pretty good. Like miso a, soup? Well, a ramen and a miso uh-huh. that are a little... Because I was thinking like, man, I used to love those little 20-cent ramens in college. Yeah. It's like, I wonder if there's an elevated version of that. Yeah. And there is. Uh, I'll plug it. Mike's Mighty Good Ramen. Okay. It's a cup of soup, but it's just a little bit better. It's made from better ingredients. Mm-hmm. And instead of 20 cents, it's like $2. Oh, yeah? It's still pretty affordable. But it is good, though? Yeah. It's worth the extra it's money? It's just super fast. And get some, you know, low calories in your body mm-hmm. to stave off some food cravings, stave off that cheeseburger craving, you know what I mean? Yes, which can be substantial. And you know what? I'm also back on, and this is all just because of calorie crap, mm-hmm. but uh, beef jerky yeah, that's good. is a nice little protein snack. I like beef Not jerky. a ton of calories and assuages cravings. That one kid, um, sorry, that one guy, mm-hmm. but he started it as a kid. Our listener who mm-hmm. makes beef jerky, I he makes stuff. some really top quality stuff. It was good. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, th- I had my uh, moldy beef jerky incident years ago in L.A. That's right. Oh, that's right. And this is the first time I've had beef jerky in 14 years because of that incident. <laughs> well, you're back on the train, though, huh? I'm glad. Well, not like a ton, but a couple of times a week I'll snack on some beef jerky. <laughs> that is, that's a lot. That's a lot of beef jerky. Yes. A couple of times a week is a lot. I but, mean, I mean, I, that's like right in my wheelhouse, but it's a lot. And just, you know, I don't know, eat a whole bag of beef jerky once or twice a week. Oh, okay. I eat like two ounces. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Do you weigh it out first? I do. Do you really? Yeah. I was on uh, the food weighing thing for a little while, and like you can get into it. It's kind of like a game. Yeah, I mean, you just it, that's the only way to track accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Good for you, man. Thanks. You feeling good? Whatever. <laughs> You're like, I've lost my will to live. <laughs> no, it's I'm fine. I'm weighing beef jerky now. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, obviously, we're talking about indigo, the, the <laughs> yeah. dye, and the history of it, which to me, did you know any of this before we started? No. So this is kind of, you're like, oh, that sounds interesting. Let's do one on Indigo and, and dug in and, and struck gold, you know, blue I was, gold. I was perusing the old HowStuffWorks.com website, right? Um, which, you know, I know we have almost cleaned that website dry over the years. Mm-hmm. But uh, this one popped up and I thought, interesting, because this is one of those that is like, oh, Indigo, yeah, that's a color, but it's also a pigment and it has an interesting history and also... Uh, Slavery and race gets involved. So, I had no idea. Yeah, it has a lot of tendrils that I found interesting. Yes, supposedly wherever indigo went, especially after the age of exploration and colonization, so too went 
um, slavery. Yeah. Because it was, it's a really intensive process in, in crop um, to produce indigo, the dye. Very popular crop. It, yeah, and it was also worth a lot of money, which mm-hmm. was like, oh, well, we'll just um, kidnap people and make them work for free. Mm-hmm. And and that's how we'll produce indigo. And that's how it went for hundreds of years, apparently. Yeah, and we'll get to this, but uh, <clears throat> there are some people that say the, the state of Georgia legalized slavery specifically so they could kind of keep pace with indigo as a crop. Yeah, and those people who say that are historians. That's right. So, uh, okay, I knew zero about indigo aside from the fact that they used it to dye jeans, and that was blue, basically. Um, And I just found this ultimately super fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this beginning, though, I thought was even more fascinating because I never really thought about the fact that if you look at any color up to a certain point. About the mid-19th century. Yeah, mid-19th century was any color you would see on a fabric or a textile Mm -hmm. was there because a lot of plants and insects were squashed. Yeah. Like it was an insect and plant bloodbath for (laughs) eons in the world because if you wanted something to be colored Mm -hmm. at all, then you had to find a bug or a plant that you could grind up into a powder, basically, or or, or some an, other means. Yeah, or an animal. Uh, sure. Like a sea snail's an animal. Oh yeah. And if you wanted purple for a very very long time, you had to, um, you had to get the mucus gland out of a sea snail and and desiccate it. Yeah. And I'm guessing that didn't end well for the sea snail. No, and that, I imagine that's a super labor intensive thing to do. But who? Like, I guess I could see, like, accidentally smashing a sea snail and being like, oh, that's a very pretty purple. I wonder if I can use it to do stuff with. Mm -hmm. The stuff that gets me, though, is when you get into, like, indigo itself. Yeah, because it's the fact that you can get blue out of indigo is Mm -hmm. not intuitive. No, because you look at the plant, it's not blue. Nope. You squeeze the plant, not blue. Nope. Eat the plant, poop it out, not blue. <laughs> blue poop. There's nothing blue about it. You have to you have to put it through this chemical reaction that's multi-step to to get it to be blue. And I'm like totally like at a loss. Yeah. How what what series of accidents had to happen so that like somebody came up with indigo the dye? That's right. Because apparently it's one of the least least natural natural mm-hmm. dyes in the world. Yeah, and and also and for that reason one of the most sought after through antiquity because mm-hmm. you know if they wanted to make red stuff it's pretty easy. There's a lot of things you can, you know, get red out of in nature sure. or green obviously. Yeah. But blue, you know, the old thing about there being no blue foods. Who's what old thing? Well, the the old adage there are no blue foods. <laughs> Uh, have you ever had Arctic blue gum? <laughs> well, I did look into this because this does make a little sense of why blue as a pigment would be more sought after. Mm-hmm. And I think it ties into the fact that it's just not naturally occurring, really. Yeah. Um, I had it, never thought about that. But the, yeah, now I'm just going to spend the rest of the episode racking my brain <laughs> for a blue food. Well, blue corn, blue potatoes, oh. blue blueberries are the things oh, that most people berries. would say. Well, what about that? I never would have thought of those. But those are technically purple. Um, they, on the Food Network a few years ago, and other people have done this, they used a spectro mm-hmm. uh, photometer, mm-hmm. <laughs> photometer, to 
look at the true colors of foods, and even those foods are actually purple. They brought Cindy Lauper in to be like, yep, it's purple. <laughs> I don't get it. She had that song, True Colors. Oh, okay. Such a good song. I was thinking True Blue. I was like, that's Madonna. Did you just add an R onto the end of Madonna? Yeah, but that's a Reservoir Dogs reference. Oh, okay. Um, Thank you for explaining it. <laughs> I didn't have to see, like, multiple emails two weeks from now yeah. with people being like, great Reservoir Dogs <laughs> reference, Chuck. So the blue food thing, supposedly people think that blue light is one of the high-energy wavelengths on the on the light spectrum, on the visible light spectrum. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And that the guess is is uh, to grow more efficiently, plants absorb that light and use that energy. Well, yeah, because the blue end is is higher energy. Yes, I'm pretty sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and that was what we were talking about in the uh, about the blue blood. Yes, but that's the opposite of that. It absorbs more red, so it reflects more blue. Oh, interesting. So if it was blue, it would uh, it would absorb less blue light. I don't know. I know, it's kind of like a mind... Uh, F. Uh, sure. A, a brain teaser? Right. There you go. <laughs> but at, at any rate, there are very supposedly no true blue foods, and that's probably ties into the fact there are not a lot of plants that were true blue. Hmm. And as if you wanted something blue back then, uh, you had to get it from Wode, which is a, if you look at those, it's got yellow flowers. Again, not blue. If there was ever a medieval English word, it's woad. woad. <laughs> yeah. I love it for that. It sounds like a little uh, a little short, hairy, yeah. stubby Look at that little woad. man with big feet <laughs> yeah. who wears like a tunic. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a woad. Uh, or the more, um, or the prettier named Indigofera, which is a family of plants in India and South America. Yeah. Both of those, that has like a pinkish flower, but both of those is where you used to get indigo. Yeah, and what's weird about this also is not only like do neither of these plants look like they would produce blue dye. Not at all. But neither one of them are actually particularly good at dyeing fabric. Yeah. They both resist binding to fabric or um, dissolving in water, hence the reason why you don't just like squeeze woad or an indigofera plant (laughs) um, and get blue dye. You have to run it through this process that starts with fermentation even. Yeah, and squeezing squeezing your woad sounds <laughs> <laughs> it does. Sounds like something else. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we don't know for sure. <laughs> we think they've been making indigo from woad longer than from the indigo fera plant. I think now we we can't say the word woad anymore for the rest of the episode. <laughs> I think you're right. But it's you know, we can't really tell sometimes whether it was woad or the indigo fera. Right. But they do think uh, because Egypt and Mesopotamia are close to Turkey, and they had a lot of blue. Uh, and in Turkey, they had more woad than indigo ferro, so they think that was probably the first one. Yeah, so the upshot of all that is that they can trace blue dye back uh, to the 3rd millennium BCE, 5,000 years ago, or up to 5,000 years ago, but they can't say whether it came from woad or indigo ferro, right? Right, but they did find indigo ferra in the um, Bronze Age and the Indus Valley uh, civilization. Yeah, and this was fascinating to me just because the um, the Har- Harapan, I guess that's how I'm it's one of the same. The Indus Valley civilization and the that that what you just said. Yes, they're they're the same thing, right? Yes, they yeah, are. Okay, the Harapan uh, civilization though was one of maybe the largest ever ancient civilization. Yeah, and I'm just fascinated anytime we talk about. 
these civilizations back then that had like as many as five million people. Yeah. It just blows my mind. They also had indoor plumbing, underground sewage. Like they, they had it going on. Amazing. They apparently had a better standard of living um, than contemporary Egyptians at the same time. Yeah. And everybody thinks is the Egyptians is having it going on too. <laughs> yeah. Please. Yeah, I guess not compared to the Indus <laughs> Valley civilization. That's right. So um, there is uh, lots of examples of this stuff. Um, the Indigo Pharaoh? Yeah, Indigo Pharaoh or Wode. They mm. kind of competed for a very long time. And Europe kind of went the Wode way because <laughs> Wode grows in, um, in Europe much more easily. It's related to the cabbage family. They took the Wode less traveled. <laughs> no, that was good. Um, and then that was really good. It was Chuck. terrible. And then Indigo Farah grows better in like Pakistan, India, mm-hmm. that, that area, the Indus Valley. Um, and so that, that was kind of like the split in blue dye. The thing is there seems to have always been this understanding that Indigo fera is just vastly superior to woad mm-hmm. indigo. Um, and so even in Europe, like you would find woad, like the the Greeks, the Romans, and then up to medieval Europeans, if they could get their hands on indigo fera uh, indigo, mm-hmm. that um, they would pay through the nose for that stuff. Yeah. Um, and rightly so. I mean, like it was really expensive because it's hard to produce, as we'll see. Um, but also at the time, you had to travel over land carrying this stuff. Yeah. And so each trader that went along these trade routes just added more and more money onto sure. it. So by the time it reached, say, Western Europe, you were paying a lot for this blue dye. But One they, million dollars. They would <laughs> they'd be like, that, that number doesn't even exist right. yet. So the Greeks, uh, they called, and this is going down a bit of a, a word origin rabbit hole, but the Greeks called the blue pigment uh, Indicon with a K um, because it was from India. And they wanted it to sound sinister. Right, because <laughs> things with a K. Mm-hmm. Uh, that became indigo in English. And then there's the word for dye in ancient uh, lands, uh, N-I-L-I, Neely. Uh, that was Sanskrit, <clears throat> meaning dark blue. Right. And then that became A-N-I-L in Spanish. And eventually that became indigo in Central and South America. And apparently, yeah, blue in Arabic is Al-Neel. Right, and English... Uh, aniline is derived from that, and that is a synthetic dye class. So it's all tied together. We got to climb right out of this hole. Yes. Because that was a big one. So um, where are we in the ancient world, do you think, Well, Chuck? I think we're at Marco Polo. Okay, good. So in twelve, the late 1200s, yeah. the, the late 13th century, Marco Polo made his way to China and was like, hey, get this. We forgot to say something. This is uh, me talking, not Marco Polo. <laughs> but um, they had, like, the, the Romans, the Greeks, the Europeans had no idea that uh, indigo came from a plant. That's right. Because by the time it got to them, it was like these little hard um, bits of dye that yeah. you would mix with water at about a 20% solution, and there you had your dye all of a sudden. Um, but they thought it was a mineral, Marco Polo went to China, yeah. saw some of this stuff firsthand. It was like, hey, this comes from a plant. Did you guys know that? And by the way, I got a bunch of it in my boat if you want to buy some. That's right. And all of a sudden there was trade now with, with China. Yeah, and that went – it was still pretty expensive because there was no direct uh, sea route to China until Vasco da Gama came along mm-hmm. and said, watch this. Yeah. 
I'll sail to China in like two seconds. <laughs> and everyone was very impressed. And this kind of cut out the middleman and all those hands, like you were saying, raising the prices along the way. You cut out a lot of those and you've got more uh, supply. And even <clears throat> back then, those economics meant cheaper right. prices would follow. Right. Isn't Vasco da Gama George Costanza's favorite explorer? I can't remember. I was just wondering that. I want to say it is, but I... I, I thought it was Cortez, no? No, no. No, everybody hates Cortez. Who was Jerry's? I don't remember. What? Which one? I think one of them was impressed about going around the Horn of Africa. M- Magellan? Maybe. We'll <laughs> have to look that up. All right. <laughs> we'll have to do our Seinfeld research on that. For real. So the cost of indigo dropped a lot because of the da gama. But, but not like rock bottom. Oh, no. It, it just was went still luxury. From, like the the point zero one percent could afford it yeah. to you know the the five, the twenty percent could afford okay. it, <laughs> kind of something like that. Yeah, but what that meant was is Wode was in big trouble uh, because indigo from the indigo fera was the blue gold. It said Wode is me. <laughs> All right, let's take a break. Okay, and we'll talk uh, about the synthesization. Synthetization. <laughs> Good God, am I dreaming right now? I think so. Good night. Okay, so you said that they call it blue gold, right? Or they did back in the age of Vasco da Gama. That's right, because it was worth a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It lasted a long, it had a good shelf life. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, huge. It was pretty compact as far as Very storing and traveling. Super compact. Yeah. So um, if you'll indulge me, like I found a little bit about how that stuff that they used to, to travel with was made. Yeah, and it's still, if it's going to be made naturally, which it really isn't, this is how they would still do it, right? Someone figured this out Uh thousands of years ago, and still today, from what we understand, the process is virtually the same. Amazing. So the whole thing starts with a a bunch of indigo ferra um, plant. That's right. Um, And you throw it into a pot, and you start to ferment it. Step one, Mm -hmm. somebody figured out how to ferment, or that you need to ferment, Indigo. I bet someone drank it at some point. Yes. And they're like, check out my teeth. (laughs) Have you ever seen teeth like these? So here's the thing. The reason why you can't just squeeze an indigo ferro plant and get indigo out is because there's no indigo in the plant. It doesn't Mm -hmm. exist naturally. Yeah. But there's a precursor to it called indican. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is what you ferment out of the the, um, leaves with an enzyme. Uh, which kind of breaks it down, and all of a sudden um, you have something called indoxyl and glucose. That's right. So you're splitting it. This indoxyl is what you're actually after. And then after that, you drain the liquid um, into a second tank. Mm -hmm. You add the indoxyl um, with air. You stir it, basically. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it oxidizes into indigotin. Mm -hmm. And then the indigotin is actually what... um, apparently is indigo because there's no other steps after that except to let it air dry. Yeah, think, it, it like settles at the bottom and then they can get rid of the the uh, the matter on top. Yeah, they filter it out. And you're left with kind of a, a sludgy paste, I think, right? Yeah, and then if you dry that paste in the sun, which I think is the traditional customary way, mm-hmm. 
supposedly that converts it into basically like blocky solid indigo dye. Okay, so it's not a powder? It says cakes, okay. and then the fact that the um, – but I've seen it as a powder, so I know what you're talking about. But I think the fact that the Romans and Greeks thought it was a mineral – Because it was hard. Must be yeah. hard. But surely, I mean, it's got to break down somehow. Yeah. But what's weird about all this is if you take that, that indigo dye and you, say, like soak some denim in, in it, it's not just going to come out blue. Right. Certainly not after one. If you're using natural indigo dye, mm-hmm. you have to um, – I've seen up to 40 times you have to wash it in this indigo to, to get it to start to bind because one of the things about indigo is it doesn't like to bind with uh, fibers. Right. And then even when it does, it's very superficial. Mm-hmm. So like if you took your jeans right now – cut it open, mm-hmm. you you looked at the cross section, you'd see it's white inside. Mm-hmm. It's just the superficial top of the fiber of your jeans that have been dyed blue. Inside, the indigo hasn't actually penetrated. And I would be wearing some sweet Daisy Dukes. <laughs> you would? <laughs> with like the pockets sticking out of the bottom? <laughs> no, I never went that short. No. Uh, that I would do a, a cut-off jean phase, but um, never the jorts. Yeah. It was always had the frayed bottoms kind of country style. Mm-hmm. No, nothing hemmed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ne- never owned a pair no, of those. No, no, no. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, George. I didn't either. Actually, it's not true. But it, mine was at a time where... They were acceptable? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I buy that. I, I, I don't... I, it's not like I was like, ooh, I'm not going to wear those because they didn't even call them George back then. I think I just didn't have them. What you're describing is not what I have. Mine were baggier. But okay. they, they had like a hem, like the bottom of jeans did, but it, they weren't at all. The Tebow jorts? Yes. <laughs> yes. I didn't look anything like Tim Tebow. I need to see what that looks like. Just imagine like 90s jean shorts. Okay. There you go. You got it. Sort of. We'll just leave it there. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, no. Let's just move on. Okay. So. Chuck just put his glasses on everybody. That's right, because I'm reading. Uh, my eyes have gotten so bad. Mine have too, Chuck. <laughs> I can't like I can't read anything now unless I have them. I have to go like this, and it makes it really hard to underline and highlight when you hold like. The Josh page. is holding a page very far from his face, and then close, and, and then, then close, far. and then far. It's really sad. So uh, I guess we should get into the the dark side of, and I think this was one of the parts from the House of Works article. Mm-hmm. This had some of that. It had some NPR in there. Oh, nice. And I think a, a fashion website even chimed in. That is a heck of a <laughs> fricassee. So when Europeans coloni- uh, colonized North America. Colonialized. <laughs> they started, obviously, they needed to grow crops and sell them for money. That was a big deal. <laughs> it was farming. So they were like, what should we grow? Like, we've never been here before. Yeah, that's uh, like you don't think about that, but that's exactly kind of what they went through. And they tried a bunch of different stuff. And they did grow a bunch of different stuff. But indigo was something that they <clears throat> tried to grow a lot of early on. They and grew it failed. In, yeah, in Jamestown, uh, New Amsterdam, I think in Louisiana, the French did it an okay job of it. Uh, but it was a woman named Eliza Lucas in the 1730s, and uh, more appropriately, uh, Eliza Lucas's slaves. Mm-hmm that figured this out. Yeah, so she was pretty... She gets the credit. She was a pretty interesting person herself, though. She was 16. Yeah. And her her father... Boy, I'll bet my voice just transitioned really weirdly. (laughs) 
And her father um, owned uh, a, like th- th- at least three plantations in around Charleston. Yes, South Carolina. Yeah. Again, a British colony at the time. And he said, hey, Eliza, you're interested in botany. Why don't you go take over these three plantations and see what will grow there? And he sent her some seeds, and she started growing stuff, and she found the indigo grew really, really well in, in the uh, the lowlands of South Carolina. Yeah, she grew ginger, cotton, hemp, alfalfa, and the aforementioned indigo. Uh, eventually, for her efforts, she was inducted into as the first woman into the South Carolina Business Hall of Fame. Again, she's 16 years old yeah. at the time. Sure. Uh, she got married to a man named <laughs> Charles Pinckney. Um you know, because she was an old maid of 16 <laughs> right. and not married yet. She's getting up there in years. And they, uh, because, um, and, you know, of course, she'll get, I think a lot of the credit now is being shared. Mm-mm. But for many years, she was like Eliza Lucas, the the woman who figured out how to grow indigo. Right. Uh, whereas the the true story is, is Eliza Lucas um, had slaves on her plantation from Africa that knew how to grow indigo. Mm-hmm. She's like, how do you do this? Right. And they helped her out. Uh, they, um, to their credit, they did share this, the, the plants, the seeds, the knowledge to all kinds of other farmers. Mm-hmm. And they are kind of looked at as being responsible for the indigo boom in the South. Right. So then you could extrapolate pretty easily that they were also responsible for the introduction of slavery into the Southern colonies. That's right. Because the indigo started growing so well and this indigo boom happened. And remember, this is still like a, a luxury item yeah. and in high demand. Everybody wanted everything blue, 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 blue. Give me some blue clothes right now. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the, the age in the middle of the 18th century. Um, and because this crop started growing so well in the South and because it was so lucrative, they think that Georgia said, oh, you know, Charleston's doing really well with this indigo. Mm-hmm. We could be doing well, too, if only we would overturn our ban on slavery. Had no idea that Georgia initially had a ban on slavery, did you? I did not. Uh, and said, we're going to start allowing slaves uh, to be held in Georgia, in the Georgia colony, so that we can grow indigo. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, in 1751 is when the ban in Georgia ended. And the Revolutionary War, uh, Revolutionary, I keep saying that, Revolutionary, because it was truly revolutionary. Sure. Uh, the Revolutionary War came along. Um, by that point, there were 18,000 slaves in Georgia. And uh, the war, though, kind of put a dent in the indigo market yeah, I in guess, a big way. I guess um, so the biggest um, consumer base of indigo for the colonies was Britain. And Britain said, Oh, you don't want to be our colonies anymore? You want to be independent? Go find some other customers. And Britain said, we're going to go take over India and get our indigo there. Right. Except they said it British, all British, British-y. Right. They said, be good. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> I don't know if that's pretty good, Governor. accurate at all. Uh, and this uh, tie to slavery and indigo was basically around until the early 20th century when um, – Synthetic indigo came along. Yeah, so if Eliza Lucas Pickney kicked off the slavery boom um, in the southern colonies, you can make a really good case that Alfred von Bayer, a German chemist, freed a lot of slaves when he found a synthetic um, alternative to indigo. Yeah, and he followed uh, a boy— Truly a boy. I know. A teenage chemist named William Perkins. What's up with all these teenagers I don't know. doing stuff? Well, they died when they were 27. So. I guess that's true. 
Um, we both know that's not true. Don't bother emailing everybody. <laughs> 27, the 27 Club. Great new show on our network. From yeah, Jake Brennan. Yeah, from Disgracelands, Jake Brennan. Catch it Sundays on iHeart. <laughs> it is a good show, though. Yeah. It's about the 27 Club, the musicians who die at the age of 27. Yeah, I feel like, I, I think that's on our list of to-do episodes, although now it's done. So. Yeah, why are we going to rip Jake off? I don't know. Yeah, he'll come after us. I know. <laughs> so, uh, British chemist, teenage wonderkind, William Perkins, he was the first, uh, he was the creator of the first synthetic dye, right. which came about, as a lot of things do in science, by accident when they're trying to do something else. In this case, a cure for malaria. Right, which this teenage kid was doing, trying to find a cure for malaria. Yeah. Pretty cool. And he came up with something called Malvine, which produces a, a bright purple. And so this was the first synthetic dye. Remember, up to this moment, when William Perkins came along, everything that had ever been dyed in the history of humanity mm -hmm. had been dyed using naturally sourced, labor-intensive, mm -hmm. weirdo-processed um, dyes. And all of a sudden, he's like, hey, this is way easier. It's way more controlled. And because it's controlled, you can put it into, like, mass production pretty easily. Just changed everything. Yeah, and we don't have to harvest <laughs> billions of insects and grind them up into powder. Or poor sea snails. Yeah. Um, and so, again, a few years later, a couple decades later, uh, funny enough, Alfred von Bayer um, said, I'm going to start working on one for Indigo. Adolf. Oh, yeah, Adolf. Yeah. In, uh, in 1865, he declared that that's what he was working on. In 1897, he figured it out. Yeah, not bad. 30-something years. <laughs> that's all. Yeah. But what's funny, he got the Nobel Prize, actually, for chemistry for his work on organic dyes. But also, he discovered um, barbiturates. Oh, really? Didn't even mention it in the Nobel Prize. Wow. Barbiturates or synthetic dyes. Huh. Uh, we'll give it to him for synthetic dyes. Wow. Yeah, chemistry, well, it's still interesting. But back then it was just like, I can make heavy-duty drugs. Right. I might make synthetic dyes. Yeah. And then uh, I'll inject them both and see what happens. <laughs> um, when that launched in 1897, the natural production of indigo was at about 19,000 tons, I guess, annually. It doesn't it, say. Those look like metric tons, if you ask me. There's an extra N and an E. Yeah. We'll say it's annually. Uh, and this was uh, mainly coming from India. About 15 years later, after the invention of the synthetic dye, mm -hmm. that natural number had gone from 19,000 tonnies to 1,000 tonnies. Right. That's a pretty precipitous drop. Pretty, it, hit a, it hit the natural indigo market pretty hard. And it had nothing to do with the demand for indigo. It was just the synthetic indigo stepped in and just took over very, very quickly. That's right. Um, and so now it's like just a complete niche market to, to be like this is actually naturally dyed with natural indigo kind of garments. You just don't find those. Yeah. Instead, uh, almost entirely, uh, everything is made with synthetic dyes. Now, let's take our second break, and then we'll come back and talk about how that's just ruining everything, too. Because there's nothing good about Indigo, apparently. Correct. Charles. Yes. 
you're wearing jeans right now, are you? Uh, unfortunately, I am. <laughs> I am as well. <laughs> That's all you wear. How many pair of jeans you got? Uh, two. I have two as well. Yeah. And, and one jean jacket. Oh, show off. <laughs> you throw on like a little uh, jean vest, you got a Canadian tuxedo going. <laughs> yeah, I, I but Emily made fun of me for buying a jean jacket, and that's like, I think jean jackets are kind of in You're like, again. Jake Brennan thinks it's cool. <laughs> oh, I bet he can rock a jean jacket. <laughs> sure. That hair? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I said, no, these are in now. And she's like, I don't know. And I was like, no, they totally are. You're like, I'm going to make it my business that they're in. No, they're in. You just don't don't wear them with jean bottoms. What are you wearing with? Uh, well, according to the websites I looked up to prove Emily wrong, <laughs> right? you wear them with like khakis. You you wear it with a corresponding uh, or a pant that khakis doesn't match. Khakis and a jean match. jacket doesn't sound right. Yeah, khakis or like, you know, I have my like maroon khakis. You can wear it with that. Okay. Uh, any Anything that's not blue jeans. Okay. Basically. Because again, you'll look like you're edging really close <laughs> to a Canadian tuxedo. Yeah, but you know, I've seen people pull it off. Will Ferrell. He wore a Canadian tuxedo well, at the yeah. iHeart Awards. He's hilarious. He got up there. Did you see that? Jean jacket and blue jeans. Yeah. But forever he had a shirt that offset it. Yeah, it was like a Did silk... you just say forever in blue jeans? Yeah. <laughs> because he did that whole Neil Diamond thing, remember? No. Oh, one of his greatest characters from Saturday Night Live is Neil Diamond. Really? And... Are you talking... You know, I mean Robert Goulet, do you? No. Okay. He, it, this Neil Diamond makes his Robert Goulet look like like dog poop. Really? It's yes. I don't think I ever saw the Neil Diamond. There was he did, did it I? multiple times, but there was one where he did a VH1 storyteller as Neil Diamond, and really? like Neil Diamond's just off the rails on like <laughs> on pills, and like he's got stitches for some reason, and they come loose. And oh my it's gosh! Just Beautiful. He's like a, a a bigoted racist who's singing about how he can't really stand his keyboard player because he's black and his keyboard player is like, I'm, what are you he's talking like right about? There. Yeah, it's uh, Tim Meadows. So I I I I demand that everybody press pause <laughs> and go watch the Neil Diamond Forever uh, or no VH1 Storytellers right. Will Ferrell and we'll wait. I will check that out. And we're back. Okay. So where the heck are we now? Is the environmental nightmare that is modern textile—not just blue jeans, but textile dyeing. Period. Yeah. Uh, there's a documentary called River Blue that I have not seen yet. Sounds lovely. But it details the chemical manufacturing process for denim specifically, where like you go to China and there are rivers that are running blue, um, which is not good for many reasons. No, some of the reasons are that the dye itself makes the river blue, mm -hmm. which blocks out sunlight. Sure. So plants die. Kills everything. Uh, yeah, when they when they disintegrate, they are broken down by bacteria, which suck up all the oxygen, which kills the fish. And mm -hmm. It's just a horrible chain reaction. Um, again, remember, even with synthetic uh, indigo, but with natural as well, but even with synthetic indigo, that the dye doesn't want to stick to the stuff. So you have to use something called a mordant, Right, which is a bleaching agent that actually that will bind the indigo dye to the garment. Oh, I thought the mordant was because the initial color that it gets is not the blue that you want, so you have to keep bleaching it. That's not my understanding. Oh, okay. No, I think it's the thing that binds that says, "Hey, uh, indigo, come on over here and let's hang out with this this denim." Oh, okay. And we'll stain it blue. Well, the wastewater, the leftover mordants are, are terrible. They're either acidic yeah. or they're chromium or some other kind of horrible metal that kills fish and poisons the, uh, the water supply. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
they spell it differently, which is why they pronounce it differently. Do you oh, know really? That? Did yeah. someone send that in? No, I looked it up. How's it spelled? Exactly as it's pronounced. But we spell it aluminum in the U.S. and in Canada. Apparently, the rest of the English-speaking world spells it aluminium. There's that extra syllable spelled out. Oh, they say aluminium? Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I thought it was just aluminium. Right, but they're they're really saying aluminium, but they're just they're British. So okay, they're saying so aluminium. that would be an extra I after the N. Aluminium, aluminium. Yes, exactly. Oh, all right. But isn't that fascinating? We spell it differently. Yeah, that's weird. I agree. But anyway, you don't want that stuff in your water supply, and it comes about in aces from the four billion pairs of jeans that are dyed every year in the world. Yeah, jeans and jean jackets and jean hats. All Canadian tuxedos. That's right. Jean uh, hats. But they are trying to work on this. Um, uh, there's a more environmentally friendly way they're, they're trying to formulate. Um, I did not understand this at all. So I'm just going to say it's magic through chemistry. Okay. I have a feeling you're going to want to explain it. Well, so which is fine. Here's the thing. Do you remember like indoxyl is what you're after when you're when you're extracting and fermenting indigo? That's right. Or indigo ferro plants mm -hmm. into indigo. So that indoxyl it's super unstable. So it likes to bind to something and it becomes something else. Mm -hmm. You can't use that something else. You need the indoxyl. What they figured out is to they genetically altered an E. coli, a strain of E. coli, and it secretes that that precursor to indoxyl. Or they could make it secrete it, right? Yeah. Right, yeah. They, like, genetically engineered it, yeah. too. So um, that, that precursor to indoxyl, when you put it together um, with some other natural um, enzyme, it separates that precursor into indoxyl and glucose, and then all of a sudden you've got indoxyl. And what's neat is they found that with this particular type of indoxyl, when you expose it to air, it automatically turns into indigo. Well, it turns into uh, leuco indigo, which That's is right. the white indigo. Which apparently is what you actually want to make things blue. That's right. It's really uh, confusing, isn't yeah. it? You just lost me with that one. Well, that's the deal. But they, they're they're saying, like, we've got this thing. It's like this system actually works. We've engineered right. this bacteria to produce basically the precursor to indigo. But in can this you process. scale it? That's always the problem. Exactly. That's exactly right. Because Big Denim is going to say, great, show yeah. me the numbers. Tommy Hilfiger is going to be like, I can't make any money off this. And and so will uh, Antoine, Antoine Bugleboy. <laughs> well, they won't have anything to do with it unless it's cost efficient. Oh, that's good. <laughs> uh, and the good thing about this is, is it it, it uh, solves a couple of problems. Um, the chemical synthesis of indigo is just bad, and then you also don't need that uh, mordant bleaching stage either. Right. And all of this stuff is running off into the rivers in right. China and other places. But if you don't have that and you just have this nice little bacteria producing it on a massive scale, mm -hmm. then the denim producers will say, we're on board and the world will be saved. It's just, could there be anything more wrong with the world? I know, because you start to think about like uh, someone, like someone who's vegan. It's like really walking the walk and trying to do the right thing. And like, I don't wear leather, no belts, no shoes. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff, they say maybe while wearing their jeans, or maybe not. Maybe they're like, oh, and I don't, I won't wear denim either. But I think 
it's all dependent on what you have researched. You could probably research everything on your body yeah. and find some awful practice along the way. Yeah. Unless you're just sitting on your commie and making your clothes and weaving your loom and you're just wearing like tan linens. Sure. No colors, no dyes. Right. You're like uh, – Because you're not going to smash up a, a beetle to get green. No. Because that's not uh, environmentally friendly either. Beetle's got a right to live. Yeah. Beetle's got a beetle. <laughs> you got anything else? No, it's just sad. You're right. I know. I was hoping to end it on an upbeat thing, but no, not this one. Yeah. You you follow the chain of almost anything used today, and it's got some terrible thing. Oh, I've got it. I've got it. But that doesn't mean you should give up. No. No. Because any way, any choice you make that helps something continue to live exactly. or to not be polluted, it's still helping. No, like, I, yeah, I agree. Yeah, you're still screwing up this other way. You don't mean to. Mm-hmm. But it, the other stuff that you are doing that is helping is still helping. It's still saving a life. It's still promoting some uh, healthier ecosystem somewhere. And it's I, still worthwhile. I'm a big subscriber to the, you know, you don't have to be all or nothing. Some people are. That's great. Mm-hmm. But every little bit of good you can do is still doing good. Yeah. Because I've been taken to task personally over the years from listeners saying, how can you be an advocate for dogs and eat meat? Oh, yeah. They love that one. And I'm like, you know, I'm still helping dogs. Yeah. It's, it, you know. I just really love two ounces <laughs> of perfectly proportioned beef jerky once And maybe I should be vegan. But to call me out on saying, you know, you're a hypocrite because you're helping dogs. Right. Like, no. Helping dogs is good. Period. Full yeah. stop. Agreed. And they're like, you know. Strangling turtles with a plastic bag while they're saying this, too. I know, right? Because I guarantee if you drilled in, Chuck, you could find something, too. Yeah, yeah. But that's not a fruitful road to go down. No, it's not, Chuck. No, it's not. Agreed. Uh, Well, if you want to know more about being a better person, go back and listen to our catalog. How about that? Yeah, all of them. Um, And since I said that, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, What is this? Oh, this is kind of a fun one. It's a correction for you, but oh, no. it's a lighthearted and fun one. Mm. Hey, guys, longtime listener, huge advocate for all you do. I live in southern Maine and frequently make the long drives to Vermont, and your podcast helps me make that more tolerable. <laughs> uh, but I got a bone to pick with Josh. Whenever I know the, where this one's going. Whenever the state of Maine comes up, uh, you guys always slide in a comment about our state's weird and independent nature, rightly so. Mm-hmm. But I've now counted two times at least where Josh has misidentified Maine as the slogan, live free or die. Uh, the first time in the ranked choice voting, and then more recently in AI facial recognition. I let it go then, but I have to say something now. Live free or die is famously New Hampshire state motto, Josh. Mm-hmm. Not Maine. Mm-hmm. It's even on their license plate. Maine state motto is uh, Dirigo, Dirigo, Latin for I lead. I have no idea. Okay. D-I-R-I-G-O. Uh, that suits us quite well as our state leads as the first in the nation to use ranked choice voting, uh, having the most breweries per capita and being the state in which the most Stephen King books take place. Again, I love the show. Always chuckle when you call us Mainers weirdos. Hope you enjoyed your time in Portland during your live episode last fall. Sure. Now, if you excuse me, I have to go ride my moose to the ocean so I can catch lobsters by my lighthouse. (laughs) (laughs) And that is uh, from John uh, Cuneo. Speaking of lighthouses, we both agree The Lighthouse was an amazing movie. I know. You just randomly texted me. It's just so good. said, have you seen The Lighthouse? I was moved to. Robert Eggers, just please keep making movies He's forever. He's great. And I was. I wish it hadn't gotten shut out of the Academy Awards. I thought... Why would it have been? Because it was black I, and white? Because it was weird. It was almost an experimental film. But 
the fact that either or both of them did not get nominated for Best Actor is just ridiculous. It is pretty ridiculous. Because they were both amazing. Yep. And production design. Yeah, everything. Have you ever seen a more like authentic looking film? No. I no, mean, that's Ed- absolutely true. Edgar's or uh, Robert Pattinson came out and was like, we basically lived like, you know, it was whatever year it was. I buy it. He was like, it was awful. Yeah. He's like, all the stuff you see us doing is is the wheelbarrow scene. Oh, yeah. That just looks miserable <laughs> yeah. because it was. Yeah. Everybody, if you don't know what we're talking about, just go look up The Lighthouse. Oh, man, it was so good. And watch it. I love it. And just watch it all the way through, okay? Yeah. And then after Defoe that, if you're so like, good. I really like this, <laughs> then go watch The Witch, which is Robert Eggers' first movie. That's right. His first movie was The Witch. One of the greatest films ever made. And Pattinson is just one of my favorite actors. He's, he's so great. Have you seen Good Time? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> I couldn't believe how good that was. Amazing. Okay. Uh, John wrote that that listener mail-in, right? Uh, hold on. I think it was John. Yes, John Cuneo. John, I can tell you that definitely in the facial recognition episode, I was being, I was trolling. I know for a fact that it's New Hampshire's slogan. And, and if I know Josh, John, you're going to hear that again. Yeah, I would also <laughs> guess that when I said it before, in whatever other episode I said it in. Uh, yeah, I don't remember. That uh, that was probably me trolling too. But if I was mistaken, I apologize. Yes. Live for your die, everyone. If you want to get in touch with us like John did, uh, you can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com or you can just send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Listener.